Do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Berzo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. You will listen to an interview with Rufo Quintavalle, who shared his story, how he got into impact investing, and from there into regenerative agriculture and agroforestry. Plus, he shares his theory of change. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. Before we get started, I've been recording these interviews next to my day job and I will definitely continue to do so and release about an episode a month. But at the same time, I would love to take this further, share more interviews. There are many more stories to share on investing in regenerative food and agriculture. More depth, improve the quality, maybe even doing some video series. So I started a Patreon community, which makes it easy to support creators like myself. If these podcasts have been of value to you, and if you have the means, I invite you to support me and make this happen. For more information, please find the link to my Patreon account in the description below. And now, without further ado, the interview. Enjoy! Welcome to Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered. I'm Koen van your host. Today I'm talking to Rufo Quintavale. Rufo is a writer, entrepreneur and impact investor. He's the author of eight books of poetry and has more than a decade of experience in investing in renewable energy, farmland and forestry. Welcome Rufo. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So just to have a bit of a background story on, on your story and how did you end up in forestry and farmland? Could you share a bit how did you why are you doing what you're doing mm -hmm. yeah sure sure with, with pleasure um i have a uh, family money um which comes from uh from my grandfather who made his money uh in the in the car industry essentially um when i came into that inheritance to begin with it was not particularly something that interested me um money Uh, but about 10 years ago, and I think it, it's probably to do with, with having, having children of my own, actually, um, I started getting a sense that this money was something that actually did matter, that I was taking care of it on behalf of somebody else, and that if I wanted to, to be serious about how it was invested, for my children, but also for my own peace of mind, I needed to find some kind of coherence between my values as a person and the fact that you know the pure chance uh, the pure good chance that i happen to to have money um it's a luxury that, that very few people have so about 10 years ago i started looking for ways to invest environmentally uh which initially meant renewable energy um and after doing that for a few years i sort of stopped and said well what do i really want to be doing if i'm going to be serious about this How do I become a more a more strategic and a more coherent uh, and a more serious investor? Um, and the process I went through was to not think about money at all and just to think about what mattered to me as a as a person. 
Um, uh, and this may sound slightly silly, but uh, I like food. Um, so I just sort of thought, well, look, I, I, li I like food. Um, where does food come from? Food comes from farming. Uh, why not see if there's a way to if there's a way to invest into into food and farming? And this happened to be round about the time when a lot of people were getting panicked by what was going on in in conventional financial markets uh, after the sort of meltdown in in 2008. So there was interest in investing into farmland at the time as an uncorrelated real asset, um, you know, a sort of safe place to to store your money and to conserve your your wealth. So there was farmland was kind of there in the air. There was a sort of a buzz a buzz around it. Um, not necessarily coming from green or environmental investors, uh, but coming from the sort of more conventional finance space. I wanted to do it in a in an environmentally respectful way, so to invest into organic organic farmland. So that's how that's how farming came about. Partly just from that process of personal reflection, partly for uh, partly for financial reasons, and. Partly as a way to to suck to suck carbon out of the atmosphere and get it and get it uh, in the ground, which is a vital part of the of the climate equation. And forestry, a few years after that, seemed like a natural a natural next step for me. And there's a lot of overlap between the two as well. And and in terms of, do you still remember finding your first investment, and how that was like to put money? into something to put money to work according to your um, values. Of course, renewable energy was also your values, but less of a personal connection to it. How was that first investment? No, I mean, the, the first investing into renewable energy, I just kind of, to be honest, I just sort of rushed into one of the first things I was uh, that came that came my way. I was a little bit too hasty. You know, I wanted to go out there and, and do good in the world. And in retrospect, I was I was too too hasty. Um, but at the same time, I think sometimes one can spend too long waiting as well, and you wait and wait and wait for the perfect investment. So it, it's quite good sometimes to get your feet in the water. You know, don't don't put in more than you can afford to lose. But sometimes it's good to make that to make that first jump. In uh, investing into farmland, I was more, you know, I learned from that first uh, that first experience and went a little bit more slowly and did a bit more research. Um, but it felt good. It felt like, uh, yeah, it felt like the right thing to be doing. So if there's anyone out there listening to this who's, uh, you know, contemplating making that leap, don't be too hasty, but don't be too slow either. You know, set aside a bit of money you can afford to, to potentially lose uh, and, and put it to work. And I always feel that if think about how you would feel if, if you do lose that money. And to me, that's almost the definition of what an what an impact investment is, because it will mean different things to different people. But if you lose the money and you feel, I'm okay with that, you know, I, I tried to do something worthwhile and it failed. To me, that's almost the definition of a of an impact investment. And if you lose the money and you're angry and uh, and bitter, then it probably wasn't a, wasn't an impact investment to begin with. And and what was that first one in farmland uh, or in forestry? Mm. Is it something you you want to share? And, and yeah, yeah, is it yeah. something you're still you're still happy about? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I uh, I ended up making two two related investments. Uh, one which was into an asset management firm um, called Agro Ecological Investment Management uh, that's uh, based in New Zealand, which is where my 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 mother is from. So there was a kind of personal connection there. But that's a company that buys conventional farmland and converts it into into organic into organic management. 
Um, so I made an investment into the asset manager itself, uh, and I also uh, acquired, subsequently acquired acquired a, a farm in New Zealand myself. So it was two two related investments. And and since then, uh, how many years ago was that? That's a good question. Uh, more more or less, obviously, not, uh, not to today. <laughs> Maybe six or seven years ago, something like that. And and how has the journey been since then, from like six seven years ago to to now? We're talking December two thousand seventeen. Um, I think there's more. I mean, I've since started investing into forestry and agroforestry in uh, in Brazil. So you know, very different very different uh, geography, um, going from one of the most safe and stable and least corrupt countries in the world into into a country that you know is almost is almost the opposite so the journey but that's good you know you go you go slowly and you get experience and go as go as fast as you're comfortable going um but no the journey's been good and i've learned a great deal and i mean that's something i would say as well to anyone who's interested in doing this go out and educate yourself and attend conferences and speak to people and, and learn from their expertise don't don't waste people's time you know don't sort of set up endless calls if you've got absolutely no intention of investing but you know be courteous and learn from people's expertise and it's it's been a really nice experience because there's people uh people are happy to people are happy to share and people are happy to to talk and you can you can learn a great deal that way um so no the experience has been good i think there's more appetite as i say there was a certain kind of interest in uh, in investing into real assets starting uh, post 2008 i think there's maybe more interest now um coming from the environmental community who realize the importance of, of sequestering atmospheric carbon it's not just about reducing our emissions um so that's nice to see as well uh there's a bit more a bit more action um a bit more action now and and in terms of brazil um can you explain a bit more about that project those in investments or that investment and and how you went from um transitional funds to to from conventional to organic to agroforestry to perennial systems basically yeah yeah I mean, to begin with, I thought, well, I've ticked my uh, my agriculture box. How am I going to tick my my forestry box? So, so like I said, I went to conferences, I read up, I met people, uh, and, and and tried to educate myself. So, I wasn't necessarily looking to get into agroforestry to begin with, but it kind of uh, it kind of ended up that way. Um, I have two two projects in Brazil, one which is in southern Brazil near Sao Paulo. Um, which is a mixed a mixed use property, so it's partly uh, native rainforest and partly uh, commercial timber. Um, so the idea there is to is to generate enough money via commercial activities, so a mix of timber harvesting and and agricultural activities, and to use that money to to permanently preserve the area of native rainforest, which I think ultimately will have more more value we don't really know what's and this is the atlantic atlantic rainforest it's in, in the south of brazil which unfortunately has been almost entirely destroyed there's only only 7% of the of the original forest cover left um but we don't know what's in the what's in the rainforest um so you know one of the first things that we're doing on that on that particular project 
is to start cataloging the plants that are there in this parcel of rainforest or using it as a, as a kind of laboratory to figure out what we've got. Um, and then, you know, the next step to say, well, can any of this be, a, be of use, whether it's uh, as food or medicine or, or cosmetics or even for industrial, industrial use? Um, so, so that's the goal there is, is first to get enough money coming in to preserve this area of native rainforest. Second, to start getting a sense of what's there in the rainforest. And third, to see if any of those uh, native crops can be planted and can be cultivated commercially. Well, then you have a, an incentive, not just for us, but for other people to go out and, and get into reforestation. Um, everyone, you know, everyone wants to plant trees. Everyone wants to save the rainforest. But uh, ultimately, there needs to be some kind of commercial driver if, if people are going to start doing this on a large scale. So, so that's the thinking behind that that project down south. And then recently, with some uh, some some friends of mine, with a, a group of other investors, we acquired uh, some land way up north uh, in a state called Amapá, which is on the eastern eastern edge of the Amazon. Uh, and this is degraded land, so it's it's land that was originally a mix of, of rainforest and savanna, but which has unfortunately been cleared and uh, and quite severely burnt. Um, uh, so the dynamic there is a bit different. It's to start replanting uh, and to plant uh, a mix a mix of trees, um, some of which which are sort of quite fast growing fruit trees. So we'll have a first partial harvest after two or three years. Some are slightly slower growing fruit trees, which will come to maturity around about five or six years. Uh, and some of it will be very slow maturing timber. Um, so to have different revenue streams. Uh, and again, my broader sort of ambition there, if this works, uh, is to say, look, there, there are viable models uh, for reforestation. Um, it's possible to plant trees uh, and to make money and one of the advantages about Brazil is that things do grow very quickly there. So you can have a return on investment relatively quickly. You don't need to lock up your money for 10 or 20 years, which can be off-putting to, 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 to many investors. Do you want to learn how to invest? Or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? we have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Yeah, which makes it very interesting. But And, and, and again, I think the Atlantic rainforest um, also has a, an enormous value, but probably not yet in, in dollar amounts or, or euro amounts to play with the agriculture land in the rest of, of Latin America. They are sort of the water pump for, for the rest of the space there, right? The, the Amazon rainforest is a, works as a water pump. The Atlantic rainforest, unfortunately, there's so little left that it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really do much. Ah, so um, the water pump is, is really... It's the Amazon. Demolished and isn't there anymore there. Ah, okay. Yeah. Down south. Um, I mean, you know, this is the part, the southern part of Brazil is the part that has seen the most uh, industrialization. It's where all the big, the big cities are. Uh, and it's where a lot of the a lot of the agriculture has been uh, historically was, uh, was installed. Um, so no, so unfortunately the Atlantic rainforest it's um, 
7% of the original cover is not a lot, you know. So to me, the challenge there would be, well, how does one sort of join up the little pockets to the left? How do you create ecological corridors to try and join up this very fragmented landscape? Uh, the Amazon, which is much better conserved, um, does serve this, this function as a water pump for, for the whole of, uh, of Latin America. So that water evaporates from the Amazon, it heads westward, uh, those clouds hit the Andes and then turn south. They go south and they rain onto onto southern southern Brazil and, uh, and Uruguay and uh, parts of Argentina. So the rainfall patterns in in that part of Latin America are, uh, are totally dependent on on what's known as the flying rivers uh, that are, that are generated by the Amazon rainforest. And there's actually more water. In those flying rivers than there are in than there is in the in the Amazon River itself, um, and you know it's 200 million people living living in Brazil. Um, you add in you know big places like Buenos Aires and, and, and Montevideo, the consequences of disrupting those patterns of rainfall are, are extremely serious. So there's a, an intrinsic value in terms of biodiversity uh, in the Amazon rainforest. There's also a very, uh, a very practical human, human cost uh, if we don't reverse the process of, of deforestation and start replanting trees. There's a risk that the Amazon will tip from its current state as a forest and will tip into a new equilibrium uh, as, as savanna or grassland, which would have catastrophic consequences for, for large parts of Latin America. Yeah, and that's why you're, you're piloting these, these ways of, of reforestation um, in, in severely degraded land. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, just to sort of try and prove that it can be done uh, and to encourage other people, other people to, to do likewise. Um, you know, there's a need to preserve what is left of these big forest basins, uh, whether it's the Amazon, whether it's in the Congo or whether it's in Indonesia. You know, we need to preserve as much as we can. There's a need to be replanting as well. And, and realistically, that replanting isn't going to take the form of, uh, or it's not only going to take the form of recreating what looks like a pristine rainforest, um, which is, a, you know, an interesting philosophical question anyway. What is, what is a pristine rainforest, given that people have been living in these places for, for 10,000 years? Um, but anyway, if we want to start replanting we need to find economically viable models to, to encourage people to do so particularly you know in poor countries you can't just tell people put a fence around the forest and don't touch it people need to make money they need to live they need to eat and they've always done so in the forest but obviously with with an explosion of uh, with the change of lifestyle and explosion of of populations the the pressure um became or becomes too much yeah i mean there's always there's, there's a long history of cultivating cultivating food in the amazon um and there's a lot of interesting archaeological work it's kind of working at the overlap between uh, archaeology and, and and botany and, and anthropology to try and figure out what these amazonian societies looked like um so but it seems quite clear that there were you know what we would now consider as orchards or, or plantations in the middle of a forest that people identified particular species that were useful to them and rather than having to go out and you know forage uh, forage for them well why not plant these species close to where you live so the native the native rainforest 
at, for at least 10,000 years in, in, in the case of the Amazon has had some human, has had some human uh, influence. Um, and you, people are mapping where archaeological sites are and then overlaying that with botanical surveys and saying, look, every time there's a human settlement, there's certain species that we can, that, are, that, that occur in much higher concentrations than they would do naturally. So it seems fairly clear that there, that there was some kind of commercial fruit plantation and, you know, for medicine or, or, or timber that uh, the people in the Amazon have been cultivating certain plants for a long time. What's changed now is that there's huge chunks of the forest that are being cut down, and that's primarily for for soy or, or cattle. A bit of mining as well, but it's mainly soy and cattle that are that are driving that. And soy in itself is is used as is used as, as feed for livestock. So yeah, it's, it's sort of meat meat production is a um, is probably the biggest thing that's driving deforestation. And is that something that you're, I mean, there's a lot of talk about meat replacement, plant-based food, etc. Is it something you are looking at as well? Uh, yes, but with, uh, I would sort of put a, a caveat on that. Um, there's certain vegetables and certain fruits that have a very high uh, protein content. Um, so I'm extremely interested in, you know, identifying what those are and trying to create, create new markets for, for these. You know, there's 4,000 fruits in the Amazon. Um, we don't know. We don't know what half of them do. Um, we haven't really carried out the, the analysis on it. But, you know, acai, which is one of the, one of the fruits that we'll be planting in Amapa, um, which has become, you know, a kind of trendy, Trendy fruit in uh, in the U.S. and increasingly in Europe. Superfood. Superfood. Yeah, yeah. And 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 it is. It's got uh, you know a ton of vitamins. It's also got protein in there. Um, so there are lots of uh, of naturally occurring plants that can be used as as sources of, of vegetable protein. Where I'm a little bit cautious is when you get into the more sort of high tech approaches. Um, and what makes me uneasy there is that if you get to a point where certain certain very wealthy people essentially own the IP on food, I'm not convinced that the social, the social consequences of that, which will be negative social consequences, would be enough to justify the positive environmental ones. So that's where I'm a little bit uneasy about, uh, about some of these um, meat replacements. In theory, it, it's good, and we do need to significantly reduce uh, the, the amounts of um, of livestock that are being produced and consumed. Um, but if we end up replacing an environmental problem with a social problem, i.e., you know, a handful of billionaires own the IP on food, I'm not sure that that's a good thing. In fact, I'm sure it's a bad thing. Um, yeah, I know. It, we would just replace one problem with the other and, and mm. probably, yeah, it becomes an issue. I, I think it is an issue, you know, there's a, obviously a difference of opinion on this, um, but that's as much to do with, uh, with corporate governance and with the way these, these investments are structured as it is to do with the underlying technology itself. You know, soya, tofu or, um, or seitan, you know, there, there are processed vegetable proteins that have existed for a long time, so it doesn't the fact that you know somebody is making a meat uh, a meat replacement doesn't bother me at all. 
what bothers me is is who ends up owning that that technology um, and if we you know there's a, a serious problem to do with wealth concentration in the in the world at the moment and, and in places like the US uh, you know it, it's getting worse rather than getting better um, and if we don't address that problem there's no hope of addressing uh, of addressing climate change either uh, because the people who <laughs> the people who are causing the most damage uh, are the wealthy people. They have you know very uh, uh, con- consumer driven lifestyles, but also the very poor people. Because if you're sort of desperately poor, you're, you're going to try and make your living any way you can. If there's a tree, you'll cut it down. You know, burn it for firewood, whatever. So if we exacerbate these problems of of income in- inequality, there is no hope of uh, of addressing climate change. Um, and even in and of itself, you know, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be driving income inequality. So that's where my slight concern is around some of these some of these processed uh, food technologies. It's not that it's not that it's it's who owns the IP. It's not the technology in itself that bothers me. And what will you be working on? Let's say we talk again um, in a year from now. What will you be looking back at in, in 2018? Uh, was the year of X, Y, and Z? What would be you be happy to to look back at? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be happy if more people, you know, if more people take the plunge and start, uh, you know, actually uh, allocating capital. Um, and that seems to be happening already. Uh, for my own personal projects, an area that interests me, um, you know, when you harvest uh, fruit. Uh, or, or crops. What do you do with what do you do with the residues? You know, some of those residues you can recycle them back into the into the land. Not the same with timber harvesting. You know, some of that will go back into the land. Uh, not all of not all of agricultural residues will will decompose rapidly enough to be uh, to be of use in a commercial farming venture. You know, you want stuff to decompose within a year so that you can use it. So you can use it next year. So what do you do with the with that excess of, of residue, or what do you do with the stuff that, by its sort of uh, structure, doesn't decompose very quickly? Um, how do you put those those residues to use? And again, it could be industrial, or it could be cosmetic, or, um, but but non-food uses for agricultural residues, and getting that balance right so that you're not you're not taking away productive land that can be used for for food production. Um, but you are valorizing as much of what you produce as possible. So I think, yeah, that's hopefully where I will be, uh, where I will be next year. Um, and who knows, maybe one day I'll, you know, the, the, my own personal <laughs> circle will join up and I'll start, you know, getting closer to what it is that my grandfather did, um, which was, you know, sort of high tech, uh, component, component parts. And there's interesting stuff going on there, you know, with natural, natural fibers, including for the car industry. Um, you know, cars are being built using agricultural residues, which is a pretty, pretty it's an interesting problem. circle for you. Yeah, for me personally, it would be interesting to <laughs> to go full circle and to end up uh, getting a little bit closer to what it was that my grandfather did. I never thought that's where I would end up, but who knows? You know, life can take you in funny directions. And and looking at the people that didn't take the plunge yet, but are, are interested, what what do you see as the two? most important barriers of making regenerative agriculture and agroforestry on a broader scale 
um, economically viable, but also accepted and, and fit into portfolios, basically? That's a great question. Um, I think historically it's been uh, an asset class for, for wealthy investors, both because of the amount of money that you need to, to, to get active in this space, and also because of the amount of time you need to tie it up for. Um, you know, that most people don't have large amounts of money that they can tie up for a, for a long period of time. So I think that's been uh, off-putting to, to individual investors. Um, to institutional investors, I think what's off-putting... It's probably also the time. Yeah. It's partly the time. Um, you know, even people who say they're long-term investors uh, wouldn't be prepared. Most of them aren't going to in, lock up their money for 20 years and very few will lock it up for 10 years. Yeah, also because I, I heard yesterday a lot of the bonus structures and compensation structures are still on a very short-term basis. So if you if you pay somebody to to deliver short-term results, although you have in your company headlines, etc., we are a long-term investor. If you pay your people to have short-term results, they probably will get with short get up with short-term results. And and so the under if the underlying structure, investment structure, but also compensation, basically the whole internal structure doesn't line up with long-term, it's very difficult to to get those long-term results we want. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's certainly true. And there's maybe more more flexibility from uh, from corporate investors. If there's you know somebody who has an obvious strategic interest in in securing their supply chain and making it sustainable uh, for the long term, um, I think you might see corporates move quicker than uh, than pure financial investors. Have, have you seen um, it already in this space? On a small scale, yes, yeah, some corporates are doing it, and there's kind of sometimes it's coming more from a, a sort of quasi philanthropic uh, angle. So it's a sort of odd mix of uh, sort of R and D meets philanthropy. Uh, and yet, yeah, there are some some corporates uh, are looking, you know, more uh, more more seriously at their whole uh, their whole supply chain. I was chatting uh, just last night with someone from Caring, uh, which is a big French. Uh, luxury yeah yeah exactly a luxury conglomerate and they they do seem to be looking quite quite seriously at their entire supply chain you know where is our wool coming from where is our cotton coming from where is our leather coming from they did a true price analysis right there for puma and then for their whole company yeah i remember that yeah which was interesting because leather was their main if there would be if the true price of of their whole supply chain was in their in their profit statement, they will be running at a loss, mainly because of their their suppliers, or mainly because of the, where they get their raw materials from. Right, right. So I think you know there are some companies who are, who are looking at this in quite a serious way and realizing that it's uh, that it's important to them if they want to secure those uh, those supply chains uh, in in the future. Um, sustainability isn't just a, isn't just a buzzword; it's uh, it's vital. So I think there are some corporates are beginning to do this, and obviously, the closer your business is to the to the raw materials, the more of an issue uh, it is for you. Um, because we live in quite a sort of a de- dematerialized world, uh, and this is this maybe is a barrier as well to people investing into rege- regenerative agriculture. So much of what we do seems kind of uh, invisible, you know, electricity or the, the Skype connection that we're using to talk to each other, that we can end up 
being quite disconnected from the actual raw materials that are, that are necessary to to enable uh, our lives. So the closer one can get to, to to those raw materials, whether it's because you're a corporate that that uses them, or uh, whether it's just some kind of you know life experience, you go on a trip to the forest or you you grew up on a farm. I think the closer one can get back to those raw materials, the more likely one is to make the plunge. So that the sort of dematerialized lives that we that most of us in the developed world live, I think is potentially an impediment to to more people putting money into regenerative agriculture as well. And and would that be, and that would be my final question, also your advice to to smart impact investors who who are the smart impact impact investors who are hopefully all listening to to this podcast and that are, are ready or they are interested in regenerative agriculture, they, they have educated themselves, would it be your advice to, to go out and also get closer to potential investments? And, and, and what would other advice be for, for people that want to take the plunge like, uh, like you? I think it's a, it's a hugely important area to be, to be investing into because no matter how dematerialized our lives feel, we are totally dependent on, on these raw materials for our food, for our clothing, and you know even for this Skype call, <laughs> the, the computer, the, the the servers that we're using. They all they're all built out of something. They don't the uh, air we breathe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know it's a hugely important area to be investing into. Um, I guess my advice to people who are, who are interested in this: spend a bit of time uh, figuring out what. What seems the right way for you to do it? You know, how much money do you have to invest? How long can you afford? How much can you afford to lose? How long can you afford to 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 lock it up for? Uh, think a bit about where in the in the value chain you want to invest. Do do you want to be investing directly into the land itself? Do you want to be investing into into processing um, or, or distribution? Um, Think about geography. You know, do, do you want to invest in your own country or your own neighborhood, or, you know, your own region? Do you want to to go into a foreign a foreign geography? Think about water. Um, you know, unfortunately, some parts of the world. Uh, it, it sounds kind of mean to say this, but they won't have enough water, so it's probably not a good place to to be investing. Even if those places desperately need desperately need investment, uh, unless you can think of a way to to manage. Um, th those issues of, uh, of inadequate water supply, that, that, that's a risk to, to take into account. Um, and then, yeah, then I would say just, just do it. Put a small amount uh, to work. And there are ways now that exist, uh, you know, with crowdfunding or with in the US you have these. Yeah, I was going to ask that. What, what would Actually, I, I always ask a last question and then I ask another last question. But do you see see now that there are ways to overcome these two barriers you mentioned, both the time that, that money has to be locked in, but also that the, the, the starter amount, you need quite a bit of money to, to be in to the place. But actually, you were answering that question uh, right away. So please go ahead. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think crowdfunding is a, is a positive, uh, positive development or, or, you know, peer to peer lending. Um, in, in the US, you now have these uh, REITs, real estate investment trusts, which allow people to put smaller amounts into into farmland because some of them are, are farmland investing investing vehicles. Um, so hopefully we'll see more, more developments like that. 
I'm uh, cryptocurrency. You know, is, is a big buzzword at the moment. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure that the infrastructure exists yet for for, um, for allocating money via via cryptocurrency. But I'm slightly out of my depth my depth here. So you know, maybe that's something else that uh, might develop in 2018 or 2020. Um, that, that there will be new new ways for people to put smaller amounts to, to pool smaller amounts uh, and, and put put their money to work collectively uh, into regenerative agriculture. I mean, if we can use Skype and and etc. to make these calls, also that should be possible, right? It, it it ought to be possible. It ought to be possible. I'm a little bit uh, wary just because I see a lot of. Uh, Froth and uh, and fraud going on and with cowboys. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. there's there's get rich quick with cryptocurrencies, and as soon as they start saying get ri rich quick with farmland, you should be very <laughs> very careful. Uh, yeah, you should you should be very careful. Um, you can get get rich slowly, um, <laughs> or or lose you know, it very we have fast. This, uh, or lose it fast. You know, we there are these cultural memes and messages that we hear so you know move fast and break things this is what the kind of silicon valley uh, venture capitalists are saying you know uh, and i would almost say what we need is the exact opposite you know move slowly and build things um it doesn't mean you can't make money but it won't be at the same uh, the same rate it will be more sort of slow and slow and steady um oh, that's extremely interesting yeah and in agriculture forestry is even more long-term and i mean Time means a very different thing compared if you're building an app, obviously. Um, and, and I see also mm -hmm. these discussions with investors and, and with fund managers and a lot of people that they, they have to get used again to a, a, not a different way of investing, but a different pace and a different um, expectations and, and things don't move that fast because you have the seasons and nature is, is inner and slow, but will continue to move for a long time. So there's this very... And, and people got a bit disconnected from that in general, probably in life, but also in their investment practices that they expect something in quarter two in, instead of year five. And, and that's that's quite a long, we have to get slowly used to a, a slower pace there. Yeah, I mean, I would, this is, you know, I would sort of throw this out. <laughs> I don't know if this is my last comment or my penultimate comment, but uh, if um, if we're sort of serious about sustainability, To me, there's an elephant in the room, which is that the way stock markets perform at the moment or the way GDP growth has, has been performing over the last 100 or even 200, 200 years uh, is totally dependent on burning fossil fuels. So it's not just, you know, ExxonMobil or, or, or Total or, or Shell or BP that are going to that are going to see a destruction of value if we move to a sustainable economy all across the stock market you're going to see a, you're going to see a significant correction i'm not saying we'll go back to sort of pre-industrial levels of growth because our you know our technology is far better than it was then but somewhere between the levels of growth we've got used to and those pre-industrial levels of growth there is going to be a at some point there will be a, a correction and if we uh, as as impact investors or, or environmental investors or whatever you want to say if we're serious about 
about uh, about sustainability. How do we anticipate that correction? I don't know when it will come, but uh, but how do we anticipate uh, that, that overall market movement? How do we prepare for it? Um, and again, I would part of the reasons, one of the reasons I've ended up investing in uh, in the two geographies I have in New Zealand now in Brazil uh, is that not all countries are created equal. So if we do start reverting to natural levels of growth, i.e. how much can the planet produce in one year, uh, and we consume less than the planet produces in one year, you want to, you as an investor probably want to be in those parts of the planet that have high levels of, of natural growth. Um, New Zealand has pretty good growth levels. Brazil has excellent growth levels. Uh, and there's a sort of a strip of land around the equator worldwide where Things just grow quicker. Um, those aren't necessarily the, the easiest countries to be investing into. They tend to be, you know, and, and poorly governed. Which is very weird if you think about it. It's strange, isn't it? The places where, where, where it grows the best ends up being, um, in, in many cases, the poorest. It's, it's a paradox, isn't it? But, uh, you know, maybe, I mean, this is not for 2018, but maybe in 100 years' time, Try and imagine a world without fossil fuels, where we're we're only living on what the planet can produce in one year, rather than you know fossil fuels that took 300 million years to form. Then maybe these these countries that historically have been poor and have had a bad deal from from globalization will find themselves in a, in a dominant position. You know that would be a pretty radical <laughs> a pretty radical shift. Yeah, because they can produce the food, the fibers, and the oils we need. It would seem the obvious place to source all of those products from the places where they grow quickest. I, I, I mean, I feel like we can do, talk another hour on, on that, but I want to be conscious <laughs> of your time as well. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. And, and we, we'll just check in again. I mean, that's, uh, there's, no, there's no reason not to do it because probably in 2018, Skype will still Skype be there. Skype will still be there. And, and otherwise, we find, it, we find another, another uh, technology <laughs> to get this recorded. Exactly. We'll, we'll check in in 100 years' time and see if my prediction was right. I'm imagining it will go a bit faster, but uh, yeah, we'll we'll see. Thank you so much for, for your time, and uh, we'll we'll definitely definitely check in before a hundred years. Okay, <laughs> it's a pleasure. It was a pleasure talking. Thank you very much. You just listened to an interview with Rufo. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and all of the tips he shared on how to start investing in regenerative agriculture and take the plunge. Thank you for making the time to listen to this podcast and making it all the way till the end. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, If this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my Patreon community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.